Hebrews chapter 10. If you can't tell, uh, I've been, uh, my wife has been in Dallas the last few days and she is coming back tonight and I can't wait to see her because I'm falling apart. I'm, I'm just going to be honest. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10. We are finishing up chapter 10 and we started last week looking at the playbook of faith and today I want to introduce us to a particular uh, not so much a play so much as how we do the plays that are in the playbook of faith um, and so I want to talk to us uh, give us some some things to think about in way of perseverance Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem. He has just left a Samaritan village that's rejecting him because he won't play by the rules, so to speak. He, he, he's not playing up to them. He's got his eyes toward Jerusalem, the Bible says. And so the, the village, the, the Samaritan village that he's going through doesn't really receive him. And on the way into town, he, he has a couple of encounters he comes to someone who says, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but, but the Son of Man doesn't have a place to lay his head. Like, I can't give you anything. Are you sure about this? I don't even have a place to sleep. Someone else he comes to and he says, follow me. And the person says, ah, uh, yes, but let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their dead. You go proclaim the kingdom of God. Uh, all indications are that guy's father has not died yet. He's trying, he's waiting until the father passes and he takes care of the estate before he follows God. Have you ever given God a, I'll, I'll, I'll follow you, but let me get all this stuff finished up first. Let me deal with these things and then I'll follow you. That's what he's doing. Third person comes up to Jesus and says, I, I, I follow, I'll follow you, but let me go say goodbye to my family. And then Jesus says, no man who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of heaven. Now I will confess to you, I have no clue anything about plowing. I have not plowed a single day in my life and there's not one day on my calendar where I've got written in, learn to plow. I have no plans to ever plow anything, okay? So I'm going to have to speak from my own experience and compare it to something a little different. I have a riding mower, and every now and then I actually cut my grass. Sometimes it's after a lot of, of, of yeah, we won't get into that. Sometimes I actually cut my grass. Now there is... On the mower, there is a, uh, a way to make it go backwards. Sometimes, sometimes you get stuck in a spot or, or you get into, you need to cut into an area where you don't really, you can't really get out of it. And so I don't have a zero turn. I can't just turn around in my spot and go the, and keep going forward. I have to back up. And the only time I ever put that mower in reverse or the only time that I look backwards is when I put that mower into reverse and I'm going backwards. I don't look back 
while I'm, while I'm cutting grass. I don't look back because I can't make sure my lines are straight. I don't look back because I won't see the stump that I need to avoid just ahead of me. I don't look back because there could be a kid flying around and, and, and I don't want anything to happen. So I keep my eyes forward. But every now and then I have to look back because I'm going back. In the Christian life, there's no going back. So there's no need to look back. Sometimes we will look back. We'll look back on who we used to be. We'll look back on the things that used to happen. We'll look back at the former accomplishments or we'll look back at the things that we used to enjoy. But Jesus calls us to look ahead, not to look back, because there's no reason to go back. You may have heard it said before, the armor of God. Everything's on the front side. Nothing protects the back. Except the helmet goes all the way around the head. But that's it. You don't have armor on your back. Why? Because we don't beat a hasty retreat in the Christian life. And in the playbook of faith, well, well, let me ask you this. What do you think when your football team has the ball and the ball carrier decides to run backwards to try to get around the defenders? What's your thought? You're going the wrong way. Turn around. Let me put it into words Mitchell understand. When, when there's a player on your team with a soccer ball and they're carrying the ball the wrong direction, what do you think? What are you doing? What are you doing? <laughs> Turn around. Out of the mouth of 11-year-olds. There you go. In the Christian life, we must continue forward. We cannot look back. Because sometimes... Sometimes it's easy to sit here in church and to say, yes, I believe. But then when we leave, we go right back. We live Monday through Saturday like there's no God. And then on Sunday morning, suddenly there's God again. We cannot look back, church, because there's a real danger in going back. Look, look in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. Look, look at the danger of going back. Now, he's just told us that what we are to do is to consider one another. Consider how I can help you and you can help me to stir each other up to love and to good works. Not to stop meeting together like some people do, but to encourage one another especially as you see the day of the Lord drawing near. And then he gives the warning in verse 26, for if we go on sinning deliberately, this is a lifestyle. This is not I messed up. This is not I'm trying, but I'm imperfect, I'm human, I make mistakes. This is I know what I'm doing and I'm doing it on purpose and I'm not changing it at all. If we go on sinning deliberately, you say, well, what if, what if we don't know? After, he continues, receiving the knowledge of the truth. You know the gospel. You've heard it with your ears. You've seen people changed by the difference that Jesus Christ makes in them. You know the truth. There's no ignorance. 
There's no excuse. Romans chapter 1, Paul says, God has made himself known so that all men are without excuse. People say, well, what about the people that never hear about Jesus in some tribe somewhere in the middle of the Amazon or in some sub-Saharan African uh, place? God has made himself known to all men. Now, all men may not know him perfectly well, but all men know enough to respond in faith. And the fact of the matter is that if we know the truth and we continue in sin, we put our hand to the plow and look back, then there is a grave danger. Listen to what he says. There no longer remains a sacrifice for their sins. Think about the implications. You have the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ that is able to atone for every sin you have ever done, every sin you will ever do. For all of the course of human history, not just you, but everyone. And yet, if you know the truth, and you keep living back there, back before Christ, sinning deliberately, you don't have a sacrifice for your sin. There is a way to be completely hopeless in sin, to hear the truth and to reject it. If we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But, but what, about, what about the person that doesn't know? We're all without excuse. What about, what about the person that's trying, but they keep messing up? Well, that's why it says deliberately. But there is something you do have. It's like the person that says... Um, Everything about them is terrible, but they have a great singing voice. <laughs> you ever heard that? Before? Oh, well, but at least they have a nice singing voice. Let me give you a, 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 a lesson for life. Many of you have already learned it. Some of you have not. That's okay. Learn it now before you learn it the hard way. You will fear God. Every individual on this earth will fear God. The question is, are you going to fear him in the biblical sense? See him faith, see him, and, and see who he is and have awe and wonder and reverence for him and put him in his proper place? Or are you going to fear him in his wrath when he judges your sin? You will fear God one way or the other. And if we go on sinning, deliberately sinning, even though we know the truth, there's no longer a sacrifice for our sins, but what we do have is fear. Look at verse 27, but a fearful expectation. There's no longer a sacrifice. All that's left is a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. You will fear God. You'll either fear him the right way, the biblical way, when you bow the knee by choice, or you'll fear him bad way, fearing his judgment and his wrath when you bow the knee because, well, he rules. You, you, you bow one way or the other. 
Every knee will bow. The question is whether you take the knee or whether God forces you to take the knee. He goes on. He, he does what's called an a fortiori argument. Now, there, there's a little bit of Latin for you. A fortiori, to the stronger. It's a type of argument where you take an example that's lesser and you use it to prove something that's greater. In this case, we know Christ is exalted above the law. We know he's exalted above Moses. We've been talking in this book about how Christ makes the ultimate sacrifice and how all the sacrifices in the temple and all of the Old Testament way of doing things are all pointing us forward to Christ, that Christ is the ultimate and all these things are just shadows of the reality that's fulfilled in him. So he makes the argument. He says, anyone, verse 28, who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So if you kill a man under the law, you're put to death. If a man and a woman are caught committing adultery, they're put to death. If a child is obstinate and will not follow their parents' lead, and I'm not just talking about normal kind of rebelliousness. I'm talking about the kind of deep-seated where they reject everything. They are put to death. If someone claims to be God, they were to be put to death. And that's just the law of Moses. That's the lesser thing. Verse 29, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. If it's bad, so bad, that breaking the law in certain ways deserve death, how much worse is it to reject God's Son, to trample him, to reject his perfect sacrifice, to outrage the Holy Spirit. How much worse could it be for that man if adultery deserves death? You hear from the, strong, from the lesser to the greater, right? From the weaker to the stronger. If it's that bad over here in the lesser law, how much worse is it for someone who breaks the greater law? He continues, verse 30. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Wait a minute. I thought we were talking about other people. I thought we were talking about all these bad folks. I thought we were talking about somebody else. Oh, we got to be careful, church, because sometimes we, we forget we are judged first. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to experience God's wrath at any judgment. No wonder he says in verse 31, and man, this is the kicker here. You take, you, you take one thing from this part of the sermon, you take this verse, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He said, it's like you're a spider in God's hand directly over the flames of hell. And at any moment, he would be perfectly justified just to let you fall. 
You trying to stop God's wrath, he goes on to say, it, it, it would be like a spider web, web trying to stop a falling boulder. You deserve it. We all do. And it's only God's mercy that keeps his hand cut under you that prevents you from experiencing the judgment you deserve. And if you reject that, boy, you have a lot to fear. We cannot turn back, church. We can't put our hand to the plow and go back to that old way of living. That way of living in, in, in immorality, in greed, in lust, in anger. We can't go back to that old way of living. That way of living that prioritizes me. That way of living that thinks that everything should be the way that I want it. That I'm in control and in charge. We can't go back to that old way of living. That way of living that sacrifices truth because it just isn't comfortable. Doesn't suit my fancy. We can't go back to that. That old way of living, that way of looking like hell Monday through Saturday and looking like heaven on Sunday, that, that old way of living is dangerous. It exposes us to God's wrath. We can't go back to that. No. So what do we do? How do we veer clear of the danger? Well, we play the playbook of faith with perseverance. Couple of things he says in this passage that, that I think we should highlight. There are others, and they're certainly worth considering. But there's a few things he focuses on here, so I'm going to limit to the text. First, verse 32, he says, But recall the former days. Do you remember right after you received the truth? How you endured? Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Do you hear the pain in those words? Endure. The word used here, Leon Morris says, is not the resignation of a passive sufferer. It is the fortitude of the stout hearted soldier. It's not someone, woe is me, look at all the bad stuff that's happening to me. It's a soldier in the fight who will not quit, will not surrender, will not go down. I don't care how hard it is. I don't care how tired I am. I don't care the difficulty of the task that lays ahead. I don't care how many thousands of hordes are coming against me. I will not stop until God's work is complete. That's endurance. I fight and I fight and I fight. And they're going to have to stop my heart from beating before they can stop my sword from swinging. That is endurance. Remember when you endured. You endured a hard struggle. It ain't easy. We think if Christianity was easy, oh, if it was, if, if, if I could just get 
just a little bit easier if I've got my comfortable place to sit and I've got my comfortable way of doing things, I've got my comfort, then, then it'll be easier to follow God. If I, was, if I was just a little bit better at this, it would be easier to follow God. If I just understood a little bit more, it would be easier to follow God. God hasn't called us to an easy discipleship. Remember, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. You know what that meant? That meant he had to lay on rocks, on the ground. That meant he, if he wanted shelter, he had to put up the tent. If he needed food, he had to go get it. Now, maybe the disciples did most of that kind of stuff, but I, I can't imagine a Jesus who came not to be served, but to serve, just making everybody make his food and put up his tent. I can't, I can't picture that. Remember, remember when you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes, verse 33, being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. And sometimes being partners with those so treated. It may not have even been you. Maybe it was... Maybe it was someone you know. Sometimes the hardest part of being the wife is watching the struggle of the husband. Sometimes the hardest part of being a husband is watching the struggle of a wife. If you've ever had a spouse who was sick, you know what I'm talking about. I watch my dad's mood change depending on how my mom's feeling. If she's having a rough day, so is he. If she's having a good day, then so is he. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know it better than I do. You didn't watch it happen. You, you lived it. So whether it was you or whether it was just someone close, you know the struggles. You know the heartaches. You know the difficulty. Do you, do you remember Maybe you didn't face this in the same kind of way that this group of believers did. But I think you can identify. You had compassion, 34, on those in prison and joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Church, Part of the reason that our culture is the way that it is is because our church, not just this church, but the church in total in the West has just gotten so comfortable that we've grown soft. I'm not saying we need to become banshees and go attack, but I am saying we need to grow a spine we can't shy away from truth because it's uncomfortable for other people to hear. But at the same time, we can't point out their sin, their little speck in the eye while we've got a log in ours. We got to take care of our business. 
We've got to grow in faith and be disciples of Christ who are ever becoming more and more like Him so that when we demand of the culture, when we demand of others, when we share the gospel and show them what a better way it is, we are showing them by how we live and telling them by how we talk. Otherwise, if those two aren't aligned, nobody's going to take us seriously. And nobody should, by the way. Because if we go on sinning deliberately while claiming that Jesus is Lord, well, that's like Jonah saying, I fear Yahweh, the creator of heaven and earth, while he's on a boat running away from Yahweh. <laughs> it don't line up, does it? Those sailors feared God more than Jonah did. Those Ninevites feared God more than Jonah did. Don't be Jonah. We have to remember We endured before. Perseverance is not about enduring for a lifetime. I can't do 50 years of faithful ministry right now. Tell you what I can do. I can do one day of faithful ministry. And if I put 365 of those days together, I will have a full year of faithful ministry. And if I do that 50 more times, <laughs> then I will have 50 years of faithful ministry, right? If I will do one day at a time and be faithful now and just keep being faithful, I will have the perseverance and the endurance. Because right now, I'm going to be honest with you. Right now, I can't handle 50 years at one time. I already feel like I'm handling 50 years at one time. Parenting with the, without my wife in town for a few days. Okay? I already feel the pressure. I don't think I could handle more than one day at a time. But God doesn't give them to us that way, does he? Just, just, well, the commencement address. You know, all the, all the graduations have all this pomp. All this, all this regalia and, and, and all these, all these uh, things that go on. And one of the things that goes on is a speaker. Typically, there will be someone, some esteemed individual who will deliver an address to the graduates. In high school, for some reason, they pick some of the kids out of the high school class. That never made sense to me. I, I, I never quite understood that. Just because you had the highest GPA doesn't mean you have wisdom. But in colleges, they don't do that. They're smart. They get someone who's already distinguished. A lot of times, someone who, is, who has been, who has lived for many years and has a, who's recognized as wise. Sometimes it's not exactly a very wise individual, but, you know, they, somebody thinks they're smart, I guess. I don't know. But in one particular case, a, a group was graduating students, and they asked Winston Churchill to address them. Now, that's a good catch right there. That's a great guy to give a commencement address. The Roaring Lion, he was called. He was in Parliament for years and years before becoming Prime Minister of England, Prime Minister during World War II, one of the crucial people in that period of time. Winston Churchill was asked to give the address, and so he comes, and doubtless, nobody needed an introduction to Winston Churchill, but you know how these things go. People give introductions, and they go on and on and on. Doubtless, this was a long introduction, 
And throughout the whole time, everybody's saying, sit down and be quiet. We want to hear what Winston Churchill has to say. What would the sage, what sage advice would this, would this noted statesman, this venerated individual give to these graduates? I'm going to quote his full address. Okay, quote. Never quit. That's all he told them. That's it. He sat down. Never quit. You see, the secret of perseverance isn't that you have to do it over a long period of time. It's that you just don't quit. If you don't quit, you'll make it. Tortoise and the hare. The hare just don't quit. It just keeps going. Sometimes we move real slow in this Christian life. We're tortoises. We need to be in some ways. We need that hard shell. That's for sure. But we need that perseverance too. That just never quit. Just keep going. Don't quit. You were, you, you endured. You've endured in the past. Look, look at this also. There's something in the future to look forward to. Verse 35. Therefore, do not throw away your conscience, which has a great reward. What's that conscience? Well, that's that conscience that we have back in verse 19. That, that confidence, excuse me. I say conscience. Confidence is the word. I apologize. I'm a human being. I make mistakes. I make a lot of them. I'm really good at it. I should be a professional mistake maker. Anyway, confidence. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place, where's that confidence? Is it in me? It's in Christ. That confidence that we have in Jesus Christ. We have that confidence. We have that sure and steadfast anchor of hope. So, don't throw it away. You see, there's something to look forward to. Because when you don't throw it away, there's a reward. And it's a great reward. And it's not the mansion, and it's not the crown. You're going to throw the crown away. It, it, it's, it's the God whom you've served saying, well done. It's his presence that's the reward. That, after all, is what makes it heaven, right? The way to the kingdom, William Barclay says, is the way of endurance. You see, perseverance is about not quitting. You just keep at it. But there's something to look forward to. I, can't, I don't do very well on continuing to do the same thing over and over again unless I know where it's going. If I have a vision of where I'm going, if I can see the end goal, it makes it a lot easier to keep going in the process, doesn't it? If I know whom I have believed and I am persuaded that he is able, then it makes it a little bit easier for me to follow that next command, to take that next step to not quit. Right? Is that for you? Or is that, or am I just an oddball? Yes, I'm an oddball, but beside that. Is it, 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 that's true for all of us, isn't it? If we know where we're going, it's a lot easier to keep on that path. So perseverance is about never quitting. 
And it's also about keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Paul says, I run so that I may obtain the prize. So we got something in the future to look forward to. We got some past to look back at and, and to, to show us, hey, I, I've done this before and I've got something worth headed toward. And then add to that, there's a present calling too. Verse 36, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while. This is one that's hard to catch. But when the biblical authors, they, they, don't, have, they don't have links you can click on like we do on websites and things where you can link back to something else. So the way they hyperlink is they'll use a phrase that's been used before and it will pop to the reader's mind, oh yeah, I remember seeing that. Where did I see that? Yet a little while is one of those phrases. Now, now you might think, well, that doesn't really mean anything to me. But to these Christians, they recognize that phrase because where that phrase appears is in the book of Haggai. Haggai is one of the minor prophets. It's set during the time that, that uh, uh, the, Persian, the Persian king has, has allowed Israelites to come back into Jerusalem. It's been a long time. They come back. <clears throat> Nehemiah is set a little bit after this when they rebuild the wall. But before they rebuild the wall, they get there and, and they're going to rebuild the temple. And they start on the foundation. Now there's some old folks I love old folks. None of y'all are old, but there are some folks that were older than y'all there. Okay, so, so some real old folks. Y'all are just young, but, but here they had some older ones who remembered Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple, doors covered in gold, like, I don't know, 30, 40 feet high. This beautiful temple, shimmering in the sun. The ornate craftsmanship of metalwork and woodwork throughout it. They remembered that temple. They remembered the splendor of it, the size of it. I mean, it was imposing. And now they're looking at this foundation and they're saying, well, well the old temple was bigger. And we don't have cedars of Lebanon and gold of Ophir and all these great materials that Solomon had. And we don't have the fine craftsmen when they built that temple. We don't have anybody that could do anything like what those guys did. And they began to mourn because this second temple paled in comparison to the first. And you know what he tells them? He says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while. I, I know it's hard. You don't see it right now. But just wait. Because in, in just a little while, if you can hang on for just a little longer, 
I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations so that the treasure of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. This later glory, this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. Do you see a pattern here? And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. You, you just, just, just be patient. Wait. Hang in there for just a little while. You'll see what I'm doing. Yet a little while. And then he quotes from another minor prophet. Habakkuk, the coming one will come and will not delay. This refers back to pre-exile. Habakkuk has given complaints to God and he says, God, do you not see the wickedness of the people around me, how they're oppressing the poor and how they're doing all these terrible things? Do you not see the injustice that's going on, the bribes that judges are taking? Do you not see the wickedness, the idolatry of, of your people? Aren't you going to judge the wrong and save the righteous? And God says, of course I am. That's why I'm going to send the Chaldeans. Wait, what? The Chaldeans? It's the Babylonians. They're worse. What do you mean? They're go you're, going to, you're going to take them? And they're going to be your instrument of justice on your own people? I mean, we're bad, but we're not that bad. We deserve judgment, but, but they, they deserve 10 times more than we do. God, how can you be such a good God and let such an evil people overrun your chosen nation? That's my paraphrase. He says, so I'm going to stand here and I'm going to wait till you answer me. It's God's answer. And the Lord answered me. These prophets always saying what God says. <laughs> kind of what makes them a prophet. Write the vision. Write this down. Make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. I don't want the herald who carries this message to be tripping up and fall because he can't tell what the message is. He's having to read on the run. Heralds are professional runners who declare messages from the authority, whether it's the king or, in this case, God. And he's got to run. He's got to read it on the run. I don't want it to be so complicated that he can't read it on the run. I don't want it to be volumes and volumes of dense prose that he has to stop and say, now, what did that say? Make it plain. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright with him, but the righteous 
shall live by his faith. Then the writer of Hebrews adds, and if he shrinks back, if he doesn't persevere, my soul has no pleasure in him. Brings us to a decision, doesn't it? Are we going to shrink back? Are we going to go back to the old way of living things? Are we, now that we've put our hand to the plow, some of us have plowed quite a bit of field. Others of us have a ways to go. Are we now going to look back? There's a danger. The way we avoid the danger is by persevering. Incidentally, my favorite verse is verse 39. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Never quit. Only by your grace, God, can we never quit. We've heard your truth. Now we must live it. Help us persevere. You're doing work in our hearts. You're, you're, you're guiding us. You're telling us how to follow you. You're convicting us of sin. Your spirit right now is showing us what needs to change, showing us how we have been failing you, how we have been turning back. So, Father, turn our eyes to Jesus. Help us persevere. We don't have the strength, but help us day by day. Give us what we need to never quit. We do your will in this time. In Jesus' name, amen.